Good morning. <clears throat> I'm glad to be here. I pray that um, the Lord's name will be glorified. <clears throat> Excuse me, in this sermon. Um, the last time I brought a message to some of you, it's been about three or four years ago. Um, the sermon I preached was out of Mark 13. The title of that sermon was, How Do We Prepare for the End Times? I shared with you how when people look at Mark 13, they often focus on the eschatological events, the last day events that Jesus talked about before his return. However, when I shared with you, I pointed out the imperatives in this sermon, the, the commands that Jesus had given to his followers during these times of great trials and tribulations that was to come. And I suggested that there were three imperatives, or I actually placed them into three categories. And they were that Christ tells us not to be deceived, Christ tells us to not panic, or do not be alarmed, and the third one was, as Christ tells us to be alert. Christ warned us to not be deceived by people who say he was an, only a good moral person or that he taught good moral principles or that there are other paths to God. Christ tells his followers that when you see all these events happen, earthquakes, wars, famines, persecutions, to not be alarmed. And in one sense, he says, I told you that it was going to happen and to take comfort because I'm still in control. And thirdly, I tried to point out was that Christ was telling us to be alert. We are to preserve the gospel. We are to guard the church from deceivers that will come into the church dressed in sheep's clothing, but are actually ravenous wolves. Well, today's sermon from the second epistle of John I want to carry on with much the same um, thought. How is the church to respond during these last days? And what I, mean, what I mean by this is how are we to live in a world that seems to be full of confusion, violence, and out of control? How should we live as Christians while guarding ourselves from not being deceived, not being alarmed, and staying alert? So turn with me to the back of your Bible to the second epistle of John. And if you're using one of the Bibles provided by the church, it would be on page 1025. So let me read. I'm going to read the whole chapter. The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in the truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth because of the truth that abides in us and we will be and will be with us forever grace mercy and peace will be with us from god the father and from jesus christ the father's son in truth and love i rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth just as we were commanded by the father and now i ask you dear lady not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we have heard from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you've heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, 
but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk to you face to face, so that our joy may be complete. The children of your elect sister greet you. Let me give you a little background information on this epistle. Almost all scholars believe that the epistles of John were written by John the Apostle. John was one of the disciples who was in the inner ring of Jesus' disciples. The first two epistles, as well as the Gospel of John, seem to address a particular heretical teaching. John seems to be warning about the heretical teaching of Gnosticism. During John's day, Gnosticism could be divided into two camps. There were the Doetic Gnostics, who believed that Jesus appeared or seemed to be a normal man, but was actually a spirit. Doetic, actually from the Greek, means to seem. The other Gnostic camp would have been those who followed Serentius. He was a Jewish contemporary of the Apostle John. Serentian Gnostics taught that Jesus was a normal man and that the Christ, divinity, came upon Jesus at his baptism and then left him at his crucifixion. Basically, both groups denied the incarnation of Christ or the deity of Christ. Finally, scholars differ on to whom the letter is addressed to. There are basically two main camps. One camp says the letter was written to a particular lady that John knew named Kyra, or in the Aramaic it would be Martha. The other camp, which I would agree with, is that it was written to a particular church that is personified by John's words, the chosen lady, and that her children would be believers of that church. In either case, the letter is clear what John wants to express to his readers. That they are to walk in the truth, that they are to have love for one another, and what their attitude should be towards deceivers. So if you're taking notes or in your insert, you'll see that these are my three main points. Our walk in the truth, our love for one another, and our attitude towards deceivers. So let's take a look at our first point, our walk in the truth. Look at verse 1 again. John says, To the chosen lady and to her children whom I love in the truth. And not only I, but also all who know the truth. John identifies his readers as the chosen lady and her children. John knows that those who walk in the truth have been chosen by God. They did not somehow slip into the, the truth or discover the truth on their own. No, they were chosen by God to be in the truth. When Thomas asked Jesus the way to heaven, Jesus responded, Thomas, saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. So all who walk in the truth are in Christ. Let me ask you, who are these people who walk in the truth? Or let me ask you in a different way. Are you one of these people who walk in the truth? We can see by John's words that these people who walk in the truth 
are not secret Christians. They're known by others. Do people who you associate with every day know that you're walking in the truth? In the court of public opinion, would you be found guilty to be a follower of Jesus Christ? I realize that in some workplaces, talking about religious matters are forbidden. But how you talk, how you live, your attitudes about certain things should definitely mark you as somebody different than a normal crowd. As Christians, we need to be actively engaging in ways we can speak some spiritual truth into the life of believers and also to, into the life of non-believers. I remember right before I was ready to retire from the Air Force, uh, I had this young captain come up to me and, uh, and, and I made this statement. I said, um, John, uh, I am, uh, I'm not worried. He had asked me about my retirement. He asked me if I was worried about it. And I said, John, I'm just really not worried about my retirement. I have this peace within me that what I'm getting ready to do after retirement is what the Lord wants me to do. And that's all I said. The next day, John came and knocked on my door and he asked me, he said, um, can I talk to you about something you said yesterday? And I said, sure, come on in. And he wanted to know why I had this peace and what was this piece I was talking about? What an opportunity, a great opportunity to share the gospel with a young officer who did not know the truth. So my Christian friend, let me encourage you to walk in the truth. Look for ways that you can be a gospel light, not only in words, but also without words. Actually, some credit Francis Assisi with that famous saying of preach the gospel and if necessary, use words. Now, don't misunderstand me. Um, the gospel still needs to be spoken in words. But demonstrating how our lives are different when we are in Christ can be a bridge or a starting point to sharing the gospel in words. So to my non-Christian friend, I hope that you're not too confused by all of this I would call Christianese speak. When I say that we are to walk in the truth, or when I say that we're in Christ, I'm talking about having a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus came to this earth over 2,000 years ago to demonstrate the love of God to a people who were his enemies. Paul tells us in Romans 5.8 that God demonstrated his love for us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Let me try to be a little more clear with this Christian speak. In the beginning, God created men and women and gave them everything they needed to to be happy and have a fulfilled life. His only command was for them to not eat of the tree in the garden. They ignored God's command and they ate of the tree. He commanded them not to eat. They disobeyed God. They actually committed cosmic treason. They had became enemies of God and since then all men and women come from the line of Adam. All people are enemies of God. But God, in his amazing mercy and his great love, sent his one and only son, Jesus Christ, to reconcile us back to God. Jesus did this by dying on the cross for the sins of all those who would place their faith in him. For all those who confess their sins and repent and follow Jesus, they are in Christ. So what is the truth? The, the Bible tells us God is truth. And we see that in Deuteronomy 32.4 or Psalm 31.5, or Isaiah 65.16. 16. 
In the New Testament, we also see that God's word is truth. And that's from John 10.35 or John 17.17. And this truth lives and abides forever. And we see that in 1 Peter 1.23. Actually, maybe another way to define truth is to define what it's not. Truth is not an error. Truth is not self-contradictory. Truth is not deception. Truth is not subjective. It is not a consensual cultural construct. And it's not invalid, outdated, irrelevant concept. Make no mistake, truth is not relative. It's actually of the utmost importance. It means the difference between heaven and hell. So let me ask you, my Christian friend again, are you walking in the truth? Or do you allow cultural norms to redefine what truth is? Do you think, like the world, that some of the commands in the Bible are outdated and irrelevant? If you feel or believe this way, I would suggest you're not walking in the truth. Sin, any sin, is an offense against God. Don't let the world redefine truth for you. Trust in God's word and his truth. Jesus made it clear to Thomas and to us that he is the truth. Jesus is the physical representation of the spoken word of God. John tells us in John 1.1 that in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Then just a few verses later, we see, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory and the glory as the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is truth. He is the only way to God. So walk in the knowledge of truth and demonstrate this truth and share this truth. My second point, our love for one another. John knows that having a head knowledge of truth or even the possession of truth is not all that God calls us to do. We are not only to know the truth, both in knowledge of God's word and having Christ in our hearts, but we are to demonstrate this truth that is done by our loving one another. John tells us in verses, look back at verses 5 and 6. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we have heard from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you would walk in it. So how do we walk in love? By demonstrating love in our day-to-day -day walk. We speak the gospel to our families when we love them. We speak the gospel to our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ when we love them. We speak the gospel to the lost when we love them. This is love. This love I'm talking about is just not an emotion-driven love, but it's a love that is directed at someone. It's a purposeful love. When we read that God loves us, we're not reading that God has an emotional attachment to us. Earlier I quoted Romans 5.8 when I said that God didn't, but God showed his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God did not look down from heaven and saw people who he felt sorry for and said, oh, my heart is breaking for these poor miserable creatures. His love is not driven by some sappy emotional love, but God's love is a natural expression of his character. God is love, as John tells us in his first epistle. 
God, in expressing an attribute of his character, directed his love on a people who did not love him. Actually, he directed his love on his enemies. While we were dead in our trespasses and sin, while we were still committing cosmic treason by living our lives for ourselves, God directed his love towards us. How did he do this? By sending his only begotten son to die for the enemies of God. Christ's death on the cross is the perfect expression of God's character. God is love. Earlier I said when we speak the gospel to others, when we love them, I had to think about this, what does it mean? Paul gives us a great picture of what love looks like in Philippians 2, um, verses 1 through 8. Turn with me to that, uh, to that in page 980 in your Bible. Paul writes, Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from His love, if any come sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. Here's the greatest picture of love. Here is the gospel spoken. When we serve others through the power of the Holy Spirit, we're speaking, we're speaking the gospel. When we place the needs of others over our own creature comforts, we're speaking the gospel. Here's some practical ways we can love one another and speak the gospel into the lives of others. By speaking the gospel to our families. Working parents demonstrate love, not by just providing a roof over the children's head and food to eat, but by spending quality and quantity time with their children together. It's more than just asking, you know, when your kids come home from school, how did your day go? And they say, fine. It means taking time to sit with them, play, with, play a game with them, read and discuss Bible passages with them. Couples demonstrate love by listening to their spouses, giving time to them, sharing their ideals, hopes and fears, praying with them, having, spending alone time with their spouse outside of the home. Another practical way is by speaking the gospel to the elderly. When we can be intentional, we can be intentional by spending time with the elderly in the church, meet with them outside of the church. Invite them into your home. Visit them in their home. Take them out for lunch. Find out how you can help them in practical ways. Maybe by mowing their lawn or cleaning out their gutters or taking them to the store or going to the store with them. You can even include them in your family devotions. Another practical way is speaking the gospel to those who are ill or shut in. Take time to visit a person who is unable to come to church due to poor health. Take a meal to them. 
and maybe take time to eat with them. For new moms, cook a meal for the family or do some needed shopping for them. Another practical way is speaking the gospel to overseas workers, to missionaries. Pray for them. Write words of encouragement to them through a letter or an email. If you have time and resources, visit them in the area of ministry. When we willingly give up our time and energy to minister to the elderly, to the shut-ins, to the moms, with small children, to single people, to the sick, and to others less fortunate, we're speaking the gospel. We're walking in love. Walking in the love of God is to walk in the commands of God. In obedience to His Word, God is love, and everyone who is born of God is expected to love because it's proof that you know God. So as you obey God, you enjoy the benefits that go with obedience. What are some of those benefits we can enjoy by walking in love and obeying His commands? Well, one would be a blessing. From Deuteronomy 28, 1 and 2, we see, And if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord, your God, being careful to do all His commands that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations. And all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you if you obey the voice of the Lord your God. When we are walking in love and faithfully obeying His voice and loving your neighbor as yourself, Jesus will show you tremendous blessings. The Holy Spirit will bless you in the growth of your walk with Him. These blessings will overtake you. They'll overwhelm you because of God's goodness and grace and mercy. Another benefit would be identification with Jesus um, when we're walking in love and obeying His commandments. In John 13, we say, A new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I've loved you. You're also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. God tells us to love Him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love our neighbor as ourself. When we walk in love, we are identified with Jesus. People will know that we're followers of Jesus. Another benefit is the removal of fear. In uh, 1 John 4, we see that there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Well, fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. A man who walks in iniquity has every reason to fear. Fear of punishment, but not to someone who's walking in love who's walking before God, who's walking in Christ. He is clean before God and man. Let's look at the third point of our attitude towards deceivers. In my two previous points, I pointed out that we are to walk in the truth and we're to demonstrate love for one another. But how do these two actions relate to our attitude towards deceivers? In a short article that I read on the internet titled, Watch Out for Deceivers, I found the following excerpt. Most were preachers of the gospel, but a few were more active than preachers. All of them traveled from community to community. In the 1920s and 30s, in remote rural regions along the Tennessee and Kentucky border, speaking in makeshift churches or barns or even brush arbors. At first impression, it was hard to tell them apart. Their appearance, dress, and speaking ability were hardly distinguishable. In some respects, even their sermons were similar. It took keen eye and ear to tell which ones were preachers and which one were mere actors. Sadly, that took time. But eventually, the truth 
intent of these itinerant preachers came out. Those true to the gospel revealed it in their words and actions. The love of Christ came through in both. When the father and the young men went to the field to work, the true preachers worked happily alongside them. When a break was taken, the true preacher waited, their turn for a cup of water. When they sat down to supper with the family, the true preachers took only an average portion of meat and vegetables that the family members took, always making sure the children had ample amount. The actors, however, proved that they were in it for themselves. They preferred to entertain rather than preach truth. They demanded water be brought to them while they lounged in hammocks. They gorged themselves on food without concern for how much their host family got to eat. For the most part, these folks knew Christ-likeness when they saw it. They could also detect deception. They tried to be helpful and kind to all the itinerant preachers, but by reading God's word, they learned to distinguish the truth from a lie. Does it sound familiar? Look at verses 7 through 11. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is a deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. During the Apostle John's day, the establishment and consolidation of roads may travel throughout the Roman Empire a lot easier and safer than ever before. However, hotels and inns were not as readily available as they are today. So the Christians began to travel from city to city. And they would often stay in the homes of fellow Christians. Sadly, others who claimed to be a Christian would also take advantage of the generosity of Christians. So John provided three tests that helped believers discern deceivers. Those who claim to speak for Jesus, but who are in fact preaching a message different from the gospel. The first test is what the teachers were saying about the nature and character of Jesus. The teacher would be the Antichrist if he claimed that Jesus did not come in the flesh. Jesus was fully human and fully divine from his birth. He did not, as some deceivers claimed, receive his divine nature at his baptism, nor lose his divinity at death. John said in the first letter that anyone who denies that Jesus is the Christ or denies that he is the Son of God is a liar. John makes it clear that such a man is an Antichrist. The second test John provided is to, he said, to watch out for anyone who teaches a non-committable attitude toward the importance of living in love, truth, and obedience. Watch out for the person who encourages a licentious living, attitude of living. John warns the believers that listening to such teachings can cause them to waver in their faithfulness of love, truth, and obedience, which God has called them to. And the third test that John points out is if the teachers add to the central teaching of Christ, that he was crucified for our sins, buried and then rose from the dead. Those who added to the gospel message were running ahead of God's truth. John is warning his readers to watch out for people who would distort the gospel. 
John tells them to not listen to, excuse me, John tells them not to be hospitable to them and invite them into their homes. Now, at first glance, you might think, how's this loving? Well, remember at the very beginning, John encourages believers to be both loving and to walk in the truth. Look at verse 7 again. John is deeply disturbed that many deceivers have gone out into the world. He knows that they're out to pervert the, God, the truth. Their error is to, deny, is to deny the incarnation of Christ. John is also showing concern for the church. He tells the saints to not be deceived lest they lose their full reward, in verses 8 and 9. And finally, he does not want the believers to give encouragement to the deceivers, in verses 10 and 11. Jesus himself warned the, apostle of the, rise, the apostles of the rise and fall of false Christ and false prophets, who would attempt to deceive even the elect. Now we see in John's day, and in ours actually, that Christ's prophecy has been fulfilled, or is being fulfilled. These believers may be known in their communities as good upstanding Christians, or others have watched how they have lived out their lives as Christians. So when these false teachers came, John is warning them not to associate with these charlatans. He does not want them to hurt their witness in the community. He does not want the name of Christ to be maligned because of these false teachers. John seems to be saying that if these believers open up their homes to false teachers, they're actually supporting them in their efforts to spread a false gospel. So what about us today? Are we not supposed to open our doors to Jehovah Witness and Mormons? If we hear a knock on the door and we suspect that person on the other side of the door is a false teacher, do we just not answer the door or do we just slam the door in their face? I don't think this is actually what John's talking about or has in mind. There are a couple things we need to remember. Remember that these false teachers were looking for a place to stay and to launch their ministry and to spread their false teaching. John is not telling us to be rude or unloving. Christians may surely talk with someone who has false views about salvation or the gospel. Who knows? Maybe God's opening up opportunity for you to share the gospel with that lost person. My advice to you is those who have cults often come knocking at your door is to know God's word. That's probably the most important, not the most, it is the most important thing. And know what you believe. Do not rely just on your pastor or your elders of the church to give you all the answers. Actually, Peter tells us in 1 Peter 3.15, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect. Although apologetic books can be quite helpful when discussing differences between cults and true Christian beliefs, what's most important is to know your Bible. The second thing we should be aware of is that many of the homes during John's time served as house churches. Perhaps John was not forbidding private hospitality as much as he was discouraging an official welcome into the congregation. By allowing these false teachers into a home that served as a house church would give them an opportunity to propagate their false teaching. Earlier I talked about the responsibility of every member knowing God's word and how to deal with people coming and knocking at your door. Again, in John's day, the church was often held, as I said earlier, in the home of believers. So it's quite possible that the leaders of those house churches were the elders of the church. 
And so thus we see a responsibility here for the elders in the church today. They're responsible for guarding the church from ravenous wolves who try to come into the church and spread their false teaching. Your pastor and elders should not allow just anyone to stand in front of the church and teach or preach their message. Prior to allowing anyone to bring a message to this congregation, they should know that person's theology. Your elders are the doorkeepers at the doors of the church and there to guard the church. Well, I should close. John gives us some practical answers on how we are to conduct ourselves in these last days. We're not only to be alert and watch out for deceivers, but we're also to walk in the truth and love one another. Practically speaking, we're to walk in the truth by looking for ways that we can be gospel lights, not only with words, but with actions as well. So let me ask you again, do you walk in the truth? Do the people you associate with you know that you're a follower of the truth? Jesus is the truth. Do you practically show people how you love them? Are you a servant to others? Do you look for ways to serve others? Finally, when someone comes knocking at your door, do you refuse to answer because you're afraid you do not know the Bible well enough to give an answer to that hope that you have? Let me encourage you to know your Bible. Know good, sound, biblical doctrine. Be in the Word. Read good books from sound biblical authors. If you're not sure what books to read, talk with some of the elders in your church. For my non-Christian friend, if you want to know more about this truth, talk with one of the elders of the church or maybe with the person that you came, at, came with. Know the truth, live the truth, be the truth in Christ. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that we have your word so we can study and be prepared to answer difficult questions that our friends and associates may ask. Father, we thank you that your Son, Jesus Christ, is our example for demonstrating your gracious love. Father, we thank you that you have called men to give us wise counsel when dealing with the cares of this world. We pray, God, that we would be faithful in walking in your truth, in sharing your truth, in speaking the gospel into the lives of others. Help us, Holy Spirit, fulfill the call to glorify you throughout this world. In God's great name, and in our Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.